Hello, and welcome to Looking Beyond, a podcast series dedicated to looking at the issues of church and state and the problems, challenges that the separation of church and state and also the intertwining of church and state brings to us. My name is Darren Strobel, and I am the host of this podcast. Today, I want to take a look at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has really been in the news the last few weeks. With Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing away, the president has decided to try to get a new person on the Supreme Court as quickly as possible before this election. Now, before I begin, there is nothing that says in the Constitution that prevents him from doing this. Nowhere in our history does it say that as well. Presidents have done this before, and presidents will continue to do this afterwards, I am sure. What I'm talking about is precedent, tradition, what has gone on before. And I'll be digging into that a little bit later, and I'll be explaining that as we go along. But I want to start where the Supreme Court begins. At the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787, Article 3 of the Constitution simply states that there shall be a Supreme Court, and these are the judicial powers within it. Now, that Supreme Court, as it is outlined in the Constitution, has only these powers. It mentions that the Supreme Court will oversee any disputes that happens between the branches of government and each other, or the branches of government and its citizens. So what does that mean? So if there is a dispute, an argument, or an abuse of power from, say, a state government to its um, citizens, then the citizen or the state government, through a series of appeals, can get all the way to the Supreme Court. And the decision shall be rendered by the Supreme Court as the last word on that dispute. It works the same way with um, disputes between states and the federal government. It can happen between the federal government and citizens. There is just a whole host of combinations here of people on the higher levels with disputes needing settling that can happen and end up in the Supreme Court. So when we take a look at Article 3 of the United States Constitution, we really don't see much there. All we see is that there shall be a Supreme Court, period. That's basically what it says. Sure, it takes about three sections to say that, but that's basically what it says. And it also says these are the disputes that it shall Settle. That's all. That's it. Period. And I could stop there and say, that's it. But that's really not it. Because, see, the Supreme Court, its justices are appointed for life, and they make decisions based on the Constitution and on precedent. Those are the two areas in which the Supreme Court focuses on more than anything else. They are not pledging any support or or allegiance to a political party. They are not there to make uh, one branch of government happy over the other one. They are there 
simply to settle a dispute between peoples based solely on the U.S. Constitution and precedent. And the Supreme Court justices understand this very well. And if you look throughout its history, the Supreme Court has pretty much well upheld its end of the deal on this. Supreme Court justices have never, well, I won't say never, but they mostly do not go with who is currently in office because they don't have to be reelected to office. They don't have to go out and campaign and they don't have to create lies in order to keep their seat like our congressmen, our senators, and our president does. And I'm not just pointing the finger at our current situation. It has been that way since the beginning of our nation. Politicians lie. They do that to keep their seat in power. And they do that so that you can keep them there. If your politician, who you vote for, makes you happy, you will vote for him again and again and again and again. That is how it works in our system. And yes, they will lie to keep their seat. You can't sit there and tell me they won't lie. They will lie. They will cover up. They will give you so much information, it's unbelievable. So when the Founding Fathers actually did sit down, and you can read history books on this, sit down and worked on the Supreme Court, they wanted a body that is separated from that. They wanted an unbiased body. They wanted a body where people will sit down and look at it objectively. And the only way to do that is to make sure they don't get elected, that they are appointed, and they are on for life. That is the only way you get an objective point of view from one of the branches. And that branch is our United States Supreme Court. Now, I know a lot of people are going, well, this, that, and the other thing. I, I know. A lot of people are going, well, the Supreme Court is more conservative, more liberal. More recently, last year, Chief Justice Roberts, who has been touted as a conservative, has sided on the side of the liberals on a lot of cases in 2019. Now, that's a small drop in the water, bucket of water, that you can take a look at. But I want us to go d deeper than that. I want us to look beyond this hype, this spin that the politicians are saying of how the Supreme Court really should act and how it really should be appointed. So let's take a trip back to 1803, three years after Thomas Jefferson was elected president and soundly defeated John Adams. Thomas Jefferson was just taking office, and John Adams was doing a flurry of midnight appointments. He knew he was beaten in November, so between November and March, when Thomas Jefferson would take the oath of office, John Adams was busy making last-minute appointments to vacancies within the government. Why was he doing this? Because once the appointment has been made, the succeeding president cannot undo them. And so, so 
That was also to help thwart the plans of Thomas Jefferson. That's how much the two men actually hated each other in 1800. 1800 is considered the worst campaign in U.S. history because the men just threw mud at each other. They didn't like each other, period. You think in our current atmosphere that our president and Joe Biden likes each other? This is a cakewalk compared to what happened in 1800. So we have this animosity between these two men. And to further drive the wedge between them, John Adams decided on all these appointments that needed to be made. Well, when he finally left office, there was still a handful of appointments that needed to be sent out. And at that time, Madison was Thomas Jefferson's Secretary of State. And so what happened was Madison decided to hold on to those letters of appointment. Well, a few people were expecting those letters of appointment. And a young man by the name of Marbury sued against Madison saying this was wrong. Now, I can get to more details, and this has been mostly an overview of this case. So I'm not going to be totally accurate with this, and I do apologize on that part. I want you to get a picture here. So, Marbury sues Madison because Madison was the one in charge of those letters. And basically, Thomas Jefferson told Madison, don't hand out those letters. So, here we have Marbury saying to Madison he had no right to do that. So, we go along for about three years, going from court to court, appellate court to appellate court. Finally, ends up in the United States Supreme Court. And in there, the United States justices, led by Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall, um, sits there and listens to it, and a few months later comes up with their decision. And their decision was, yeah, this is wrong, this is bad. And if you read the decision, it's interesting (laughs) because they're going back and forth as to what the government did was wrong and what the – what what the gripe of Marbury was. Finally, the Supreme Court says, yeah, the government did what the government did was wrong. And then to add salt to the injury, the Supreme Court says, oh, and by the way, it was unconstitutional. Boom. Judicial review landed right in the lap of the Supreme Court. They took the power right there. As I said earlier, there has been discussions on who should have that power. The Supreme Court came down and basically said at the, toward the end of Marbury versus Madison, oh, by the way, we have the power to declare things constitutional and unconstitutional. We have the power of judicial review. Therefore, you have nothing to say about it. And that, my friends, is how it came about. Marbury versus Madison is the landmark case, is a precedent-setting case. There is nothing in the Constitution that says one branch of government or the other branch of government shall have the uh, judicial review in their uh, tools. The Supreme Court took it, and this is what we mean by precedent. And it's going to be what, I, what I'm going to talk about a little bit later, too, is precedent. The Supreme Court does not make decisions based on just the U.S. Constitution. They do. There's other laws and other areas where they make these decisions. 
And part of that is precedent. Precedent is what has gone on before. And it is a lot harder to overturn a case based on both the Constitution and precedent. Now, what I mean by that is this. We have had a lot of landmark cases in our life. There's the Brown versus Board of Education back in the 50s, where the Supreme Court basically said that African Americans can go to any classroom they want to without fear of segregation. There's also been uh, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, which had a lot of cases based on that, which basically says a U.S. citizen is a U.S. citizen. It doesn't matter what their ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what their race is. It doesn't matter anything. If they are a U.S. citizen, they are a U.S. citizen, and the government cannot infringe on that. Those amendments, by the way, were passed later after the Civil War. More importantly, we've had a landmark case called Dred Scott, where there was a discussion on if a slave is free, if they cross over to free uh, the free end of the country in the North, are they considered free or are they considered a slave? Now, the Supreme Court has upheld that back when it was um, argued in front of them, basically because... It says in the U.S. Constitution, an African-American is considered three-fifths a human. It's not a full, they're not fully human. In other words, they're property. They're a piece of furniture. One of, one of the people said, well, you can't make a f- chair free by crossing it over into another state. And that was basically the main argument, and it was upheld by uh, Supreme Court Ch- Chief Justice Taney's court. Now... Having said that as well, many years later, because it was a precedent, uh, it was finally overturned after the Civil War, especially with the amendments. A lot of those amendments struck down Dred Scott. But it took years for that to happen because it was a precedent-setting case. So here we have this uh, duality of the Supreme Court happening which is precedent and the U.S. Constitution. But before I go on, I want to visit one more landmark case here, and then I'm going to shut this off for the day. I want to introduce you to the 1973 Supreme Court. The makeup of this Supreme Court, I want you to pay attention to, and I'm going to dig into it. I also want you to pay attention to the presidents who appointed them and the political party who appointed them because I will be mentioning that as well. I want you to see some patterns here. I want you to listen for me saying the same thing over a few times. Because this case that I'm going to bring up after I introduce the 1973 Supreme Court is important in our history, and one that we still debate about some 60 years later. So here we go. 1973 Supreme Court makeup. Harry Blackman was his, was a chief justice, an associate. He was appointed by Richard Nixon, who was a Republican. Warren Burger, who was the Supreme Court chief justice, was appointed by Richard Nixon, a Republican. We also have associate William Douglas, who was appointed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was a Democrat. We also have 
Associate Justice William Brennan, who was appointed by Eisenhower, who was a Republican. We also have Associate Justice Potter Stewart, who was appointed by Eisenhower, who was a Republican. We have Thurgood Marshall, who was appointed by Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was a Democrat. We have Lewis Powell, who was appointed by Richard Nixon, who was a Republican. We also have Byron White, who was appointed by John F. Kennedy, who was a Democrat. And we finally have William Rehnquist, who was appointed by Richard Nixon, who was a, a Republican. And later on, William Rehnquist would be then elevated to Chief Justice um, and appointed by Ronald Reagan, who was a Republican. Now, I want you to see these patterns as I get into this, because this is going to be interesting. You have nine justices, nine men, nine males. As I also read off the list, I hope you heard Richard Nixon's name four times. Richard Nixon has one of the most distinguished honors in political history. He has been one of the few presidents to appoint three or more Supreme Court justices in his time as president. He got to appoint four. Eisenhower, I hope you heard, twice. And he was a Republican. So if you were counting, we have six Republicans and three Democrats. Now to, uh, to, now to look at the Democrats, each one of those Democrats were appointed by a different Democratic president, FDR, LBJ, JFK. So we have that whole dichotomy going on there. This was a 6-3 court leaning toward the Republican, quote-unquote, conservative side. This was a totally Republican Supreme Court. The, Re the Republicans were in complete control of the Supreme Court for about maybe, oh, 10, 15 years after this case. Okay? I want to say that again. This was a 6-3 Supreme Court of Republicans. The Republicans controlled the Supreme Court in 1973. So what happened in 1973? The mere mention of the case, I'm going to say, is going to cause you to shut this off and walk away. It is a very volatile case. It is a very, um, it is a very controversial case. We still today are divided over this case. It was Roe v. Wade. Yes. Now, Roe v. Wade, you have got to do one thing, if anything, after this podcast, is to look it up and read about it. Don't go to Wikipedia. Go to the Supreme Court archives. That will be more enlightening than what you would find on the internet in Wikipedia or someplace. Because I was enlightened by my constitutional law professor at Kearney State College, which is now University of Nebraska at Kearney, back in 1983, when my constitutional law professor had us sit down, turn over a piece of 
turn over a packet of papers and start reading the Supreme Court decision. He had us um, read the ones who were in favor, the majority paper, and he had us read the dissenting views. The majority paper and the dissenting views are very interesting to read. And I'll get into all that as well as, as we go along here. But if you do read Roe v. Wade, understand this one thing. The woman at question here, Roe, that's not her real name, wanted to have an abortion in Texas. And Texas forbade abortions. The main argument, if you read Roe v. Wade, is this. A woman has a right, like a man does, over decisions for medical procedures that she feels she can do without interference of law and government. I want to say that again. The case's basic argument was... A woman has the right to determine what medical procedures can be done to her body without interference from the government. Now, yeah, this opens up abortion to being done. And yeah, I understand that. I do. I'm going to tell you right now, I am not for abortion. But I also follow Romans 13.1, where it says in the Bible that we should be subject to all government authorities and their laws. I want to throw that out there, too. Now, does that mean it's right? No, it's not right. But from time to time, there are laws within the governments which are not right. Even in tyrannical, monarchical, any type of government that we have in this world, they will do things that are not right. Now, should we sit by and let it go by? No, we have the right to protest in this country. And that is one of our great assets of our country. But in other countries, they don't have that right. They don't have that right. They will be jailed. They will be tortured. They will be killed for their political opinions. And I want that to sit with you for a while. But I am going to say this. Roe v. Wade set a precedent. And it is a precedent that you cannot overturn because the Supreme Court is not in the habit of taking away individual freedoms. They are in the habit of granting individual freedoms, but there's very few cases in its history where they actually take away individual freedoms. And this is one of them because it was argued on the basis of medical procedures and a woman's right to choose what she wants. I want to underline that because this case is based on the 14th Amendment in it where and the 14th Amendment says basically that we have the right to choose things that we can without government interference or law set up to prevent life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's right there in Amendment 14. A lot of cases are based on Amendment 14. When I took my constitutional law class, we had little quizzes. And the professor would say, okay, what amendment is this based on? 
And about halfway through the constitutional law class, we, you know, a lot of us would say, the 14th Amendment. He said, yeah, yeah, we know, 14th Amendment. But what else? A lot of cases are decided on the 14th Amendment. Read your constitution. Read the 14th Amendment. I'm not going to read it here for you today because you should read it. It does outline what your rights are as a citizen in the United States of America, and Roe v. Wade is based on that. Okay, so let me get into some patterns here that I'm overlooking right now. I got a little off track there, and I do apologize. So what was the final count, the final vote for Roe v. Wade? Seven to two. Now, I can sit there and leave it at that, and you guys will sit there and wonder, okay, so who were the supporting justices and who were the dissenting justices? Who was in the majority? Who was the dissenting? And I'm, what I'm going to tell you is going to blow your mind, okay? So remember, the Supreme Court is made up at this time of six Republicans, three Democrats. And the two dissenters were Byron Wright a Democrat. White was a Democrat appointed by Kennedy. Remember that? Now, that should not be a shocker to you. It should be, really. I I'm said that sarcastically. It should be because he's a Democrat and he's dissenting. He's saying, no, this is not a constitutional right. A Democrat. Okay. Wow. So that means, as you're thinking about it and doing the math in your head, it means this. The second dissenting vote was William Rehnquist, who is later going to become Supreme Court Chief Justice. And he sided with White. Matter of fact, Rehnquist wrote the paper for the dissent. And Rehnquist was appointed by a Republican. So you have a Republican and a Democrat dissenting. That means the other five Republicans supported Roe's argument and the other two Democrats supported Roe's arguments and said, yes, it is a woman's right to do this. Now, what, what does this information mean? Well, number one, nine men, seven of them, cited on giving this right to a woman. Nine men decided this, okay? That should be the first obvious thing. There was not a woman sitting on the Supreme Court at this time, not until the 80s, not until you get Sandra Day O'Connor. So here you have a womanless Supreme Court making a decision for women, all men making this decision for women. The other thing that should really get your mind blowing is, hey, you have five Republicans that came out and said, this should be a right. You have nine, five Republicans. Five. Remember who appointed those Republicans? Eisenhower and Nixon. That should be Enough there to blow your mind away. Now, I want you to understand this, and I want you to understand this clearly. The Supreme Court 
does not hold allegiances to the president who appoints them or to the Congress or the Senate that, that allows them to be appointed on the Supreme Court. They do not make laws. All they do is determine the constitutionality of the laws. They determine where the laws have been broken. They determine if individual rights have been violated. They do not legislate from the bench. They never have legislated from the bench. And if anybody tells you they have, you need to really take a good hard look at the Supreme Court because Brown versus the Board of Education was not a legislative act. It was an act in which the Supreme Court saw an abuse of power by the states preventing people to equal education opportunities. You need to look at your history before you start falling for the strong left or the strong right as to what they are saying is the true facts because they're distorting them to confuse you. No, the Supreme Court bases their judgments on the Constitution and precedents. Now, since Roe v. Wade has been instituted, we have had many cases. Some of them, there have been parts of it that say, okay, yeah, this is this, this is this. They've determined when life begins. And a lot of the Supreme Court justices later, a lot of them women, have also said, well, the third trimester is when the baby starts really being formed. Anything beyond that should be against the law. And I agree with that. If you're going to wait till the third trimester to abort the baby, that's understandable. Okay? I believe uh, life begins at conception. I think it's unfortunate that we have to have abortions. But we live in a sinful world. And there are... Even if we make it against the law, there still will be people who will be breaking it. We have murder as a crime, and yet we still have people committing murder, even though in Texas they have life sentence punishable by death, murder punishable by death, and yet a lot of people say that should prevent it. It doesn't. We can do everything in our power to prevent it or do away with it. But this is what I believe. You can go ahead and have Roe v. Wade be the law. There have been many attempts to overturn it, and it's still standing. And the latest Supreme Court justice is going to do the same thing as every Supreme Court justice before them. They are going to, she is going to decide the cases based on precedent and the law. And you have to come up with compelling evidence in, over, in order to overturn precedent. Like I said, Dred Scott was on the book for decades until it was overturned. Close to 100 years. Roe v. Wade is coming up to over 60 years. That long means it's precedent. Now... You can sit there and argue with me till you're blue in the face. And I'm going to tell you this. I am in full agreement with you that it should be something we need to deal with. But let me ask you this question. What are you going to do about it? 
How are you going to show it? I'm not going to tell you to go out and commit violent acts, bombings of Planned Parenthood centers or anything. No. But how about if you take a different angle at this, looking beyond what's there? The law's going to be there. Have you ever thought of going into a Planned Parenthood center, sitting down with some of those women in there and listening to their plight, their problems, asking them, hearing their stories of why they don't want this baby and not saying anything about dissuading them from abortion, but be compassionate, empathetic, and say, you know, let's talk some more about this. And also, if you need somebody out here, I'll be out here after it's done, and we can talk some more. If we take the lead of Jesus Christ and say, hey, love your neighbors, we will go a long way in circumventing the law from the, from the ground up. Romans 13.10 states, the fulfillment of the law is love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If we want to um, have our laws fulfilled, we don't have to worry about what's already on the books because the Ten Commandments have been written on our hearts. Roe v. Wade is going to be around long after this Supreme Court battle. Unfortunately for many, that's going to be one, one year too long. And that's fine. You can live with it. You can fight it. But you don't have to be violent about it. You don't have to be demeaning about it. If you take the course and path of love, you will realize that eventually the law will crumble on its own. But that's because you've already taken the first step and showing compassion to those women who have to make this terrible decision. It is the law of the land. It was decided by six, a 7 to 2 margin, five Republicans, two Democrats, sided for the majority, and I want you to understand that. But if there's something you really want to do, if you want to look beyond the hype, the spin, then we need to take a look at our own selves and say, okay, then what can I do to help someone in this situation? Instead of going to a Planned Parenthood center, taking a Bible and bashing it over the forehead and saying, hey, you're breaking God's law, what if you came down and said, you know, Jesus told me to love even my worst enemies. What can we do to bridge this gap? What can I do to help you in this situation? Because more than likely, they're going to be by themselves, and they're feeling lonely and isolated to begin with. Maybe a friendly face may turn the tide. You never know. Thank you.